Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And our, our text this morning is verses 1 through 3, which completes the section that we've been looking at for the last several weeks. And I would like to read that whole thing in context. So as you're finding your place there, let's stand together and we'll begin reading in, in chapter 1, verse 13. So we'll begin there and, and read through chapter 2, verse 3. 1 Peter 1 beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, once again, we ask for your help as we study your word. and We're so thankful for it. Thankful that you've written these words down and that they are applicable to us just as they were to our ancient brothers and sisters. We pray that you would give us that conviction. That just as Peter wrote words that were desperately needed by those in Asia Minor, they are needed by us today. Please press that upon our minds and hearts as we study these things. And may your spirit, Father, help us to understand them and embrace them. So that as we leave this place, we desire to obey out of a growing affection for our Lord Jesus. 
We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus Freak. Before it was a song, it was a pejorative term that was coined in the late 60s to refer to those who were involved in the Jesus movement. I really don't want to talk about the history of the phrase. I really want us to think about the phrase itself, Jesus Freak. If the world was going to look at your life and describe your life by putting one word in front of the word freak, what word would they choose? If you're a freak about something today, what is it? And, and, and if we as a church are freaks about something, what is it? Some, some Christians, some churches might best be called Bible freaks or doctrine freaks. Maybe others would be worship or evangelism freaks or or how about one anothering freaks? You could call them. You you could call one anothering freaks. Those churches that are all about community. We we like community, right? All of these things that I've just mentioned are things that we should be passionate about, right? But if but if there's one word that we want to describe us, one word that we're just we're nuts about this one thing. What would we want that one thing to be? Now, if we're all being honest this morning, might there actually be? It, it, might be the case that none of those things are what we're totally nuts about. Is it possible that some of us are sports freaks or career freaks or entertainment freaks? What, what is it for you? As, as an elect exile, if, if, you, if you're going to be called a freak, what would you want to be the modifier, the, the word that comes in front of it? What should be the highest longing of your life? What would, what would be most consistent if your life truly reflects your station and message as an elect exile? Well, we would have to come back around to, to Jesus freak, I think. Because he is the whole point of who we are and our message. Jesus himself should be our highest longing. Every, every other thing that we do and every love that we have should be derivative. If we're to say... I'm living a life that is consistent with who I am and what I say I believe. This, this is the final of five components of conduct becoming of an elect exile. Longing for Christ. For the sake of, of time, I won't completely recap the first four. You can get all of those sermons online. But I will just say this, just very quickly, what those first four were. The first was be hopeful, then be holy, be fearful, be loving, and then finally this morning, be longing, be longing, with special emphasis on the object of our longing. We're, we're going to start with verse 2 this morning. I'll explain why in just a moment, but look at verse 2 with me. Verse Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk. The main command in these first three verses is right there in verse 2. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Shortly we'll back up and look at verse 1. Now, Some of us may read that verse, catch that word milk, spiritual milk, 
And our minds might be drawn to 1 Corinthians 3 or Hebrews 5, where milk is attached to this idea of spiritual immaturity. And in those passages, the idea is that if you still need milk, it's because you are immature in the faith. Now, if, if, if your mind went to those passages, kudos to you. That's a, that's a great thing. It just means that you're reading the Bible repetitively and broadly enough that you're beginning to be something like a walking concordance. That's a really good thing. We just want to be careful that we don't automatically equate the meaning of those passages with this one, because here Peter is commending milk, and he is commending being like a newborn baby. He's, he's not implying that the readers are immature or that they're new believers. He's actually calling all believers of, of all maturity levels to be like newborn babies in, in this sense, in just one sense. Newborn babies want one thing, right? They just want milk. They, they want milk like it's their job. And it kind of is their job, right? All, all, all they need to do is get bigger. And so he's saying, be, be like that. Just long above all things, for, all things for one thing, and that is this pure spiritual milk. Now, a really important question for us to consider this morning is, what is that pure spiritual milk that he's referring to? It all hinges on the, the word translated spiritual in the text. There are a couple of translations that would render that word with a phrase, of the word. And so those translations read something like, the pure milk of the word. So if you're, if you're, if you're reading one of those translations, then you might, you might just naturally assume that Peter, of course, is talk, talking about the Bible. All other major translations render the word spiritual. Now, I, I, I've tried to find a way around this, but I just can't, can't think of one. So I'm going to have to tell you the Greek word, okay? I try not to do this, but, but I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know how to explain this otherwise. The word is logikos, all right? It's logikos. So don't go to sleep. Please don't go to sleep. Logikos, and Greek lexicons define that word as pertaining to the mind and spirit, so it's an adjective pertaining to the mind and spirit. It's only used one other place in the Bible, and that's in Romans 12.1. But it pertains to the mind and the spirit, and that's why when, when we look for other uses of this word outside the Bible, it's used voluminously outside the Bible, we find that those pieces of ancient Greek literature use it to refer to what is rational or reasonable. Okay? So then why would these two English translations render this word with a phrase, of the word? Well, they do that because it has the same root as the Greek word logos, logikon logos, and logos means word. And, and it kind of makes sense, right? They've got the same root, and they, they, they sound similar. So we might think, well, oh, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. If, if you've studied languages, or even if you've just paid attention to English, you know that it really isn't how languages work, though. The, the same root in two different words doesn't mean that they mean the same thing, 
It, it can, but it doesn't have to. And it doesn't have to mean that they mean even close to the same thing. What is determinative is how the word is used. And so when, we're, when we want to know how a, how, what, a, what a biblical word means, what we need to look at is, is not the root of the word, but how is that word used elsewhere? And of course, as I already mentioned, it's only used one other place in the Bible. So the Bible itself is not super helpful in telling us what this word means. But when we look outside the Bible, it, it never means of the word. It, it always means what is rational or reasonable. Now, this idea that we can take the, the, the root and if it's, it's similar to logos, so it must have something to do with the word. L let's use a, a, an absurd illustration to show just how, how kind of strange that thinking is. Let's say that a thousand years from now, the English that we speak is a dead language. And uh, some civilization in the future would like to discover the meaning of, of English and, and, and study some of our literature. And so they find a book written in 2019, and they're trying to make sense of it. And they know that the word base, B-A-S-E, they know that that refers to these square objects that were used in, in a game that we, we played in the, the 20th and 21st century when people would run around these things called bases. But they find this word basement, and as best that they can tell, these, a basement was a part of people's houses. Now, they're smart enough to, to not be as silly as to think that a basement and a base are the same thing, because obviously a basement is a part of people's houses, but what would a basement be used for? Well, they've got the same root, right? So a basement must be used to store bases. That's the kind of thinking that, that we're getting into if, if we say that logicon means so it has to mean something similar to logos. This just isn't how language works. Do you see what I'm saying? It, it, it has to be, the, the meaning of a word has to be determined by how it's actually used in literature. Right? There is a, a way in Greek to write the, the idea of the word using the word logos. And, and any first semester Greek student could tell you how to do that. That's not what Peter does. He doesn't do that. He uses a different word. He uses logicon, which means it's something else. It means rational or pertaining to the mind and or spirit. So he's, he's talking about spiritual milk. This is, this is milk that's not for your physical body, but long for the milk that, that, that nourishes the non-physical part of you. We still haven't answered the question, what is that milk? Okay. Now, we can disagree about what this milk is. That's absolutely fine. But you've probably already picked up on the idea that I don't think that it's the word. I do not think that the milk is the word. Um, I'm not alone in thinking that it's not the word. And the only reason that I tell you that is that I don't want, I, I, I want you to be confident that I'm never going to bring you an interpretation that, that I alone hold in, in church history. That's a really dangerous thing to do. I would never do that. There are a number of commentators that would say, to you this morning, that this is not the word of God. The, the, the milk is not the word. I agree with those commentators. The, the, the word itself, milk, is not determinative. As I've already mentioned, there are these two places in the New Testament where milk refers to teaching, but in both of those contexts, it refers to such elementary teaching that we're encouraged to move beyond it. 
And if you're spending your time in those things, it means that you're immature, which just doesn't fit with what Peter is saying here. Milk is also used as a metaphor elsewhere in the New Testament that, that clearly doesn't refer to the word. In the Old Testament, the word milk is used as a metaphor, and as far as I can tell, it never refers to the word. So the word milk itself isn't that helpful. Context is the most important tool for us as we're trying to answer these kinds of interpretive questions. For that reason, I think that the milk is Christ himself. The biggest thing that leads me to say that is the following verse, verse 3, where Peter continues this milk metaphor. If you look at verse 3 with me, it reads, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, Peter it's quoting Psalm 34. Now, why, why, why Psalm 34? Because it fits with the metaphor that he's just introduced. And it contains the words taste and Lord. It contains these two things that fit with the metaphor. Just, the Lord Jesus himself is the source of life and sustenance and spiritual growth. That's, that's what Peter has in mind. Now, if Peter had in mind that the word of God is this milk. There are any number of Old Testament references that he could have used to communicate that same idea and connect it with that milk metaphor. For example, he could have used Psalm 119.103, which, which connects the word of God to this faculty of taste. It says, how sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than honey to my mouth. That, that would have made... So much more sense if the milk was the word. <coughs> but it seems to me that Peter has, the, Peter has the Lord in mind. And so Psalm 34 is what he thinks of. And that's what he's calling our attention to. Now, it's, it's entirely possible that the milk is the word and, and that he's, he's saying, long for the word because that's where we find the Lord. Perhaps that's what he's saying. It just seems to me that in verse 3, he's continuing the metaphor. Long for this milk. Milk is something that you taste. Long for the milk if you have tasted the Lord. The, 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 Lord, the Lord is the milk. Now, this, this tasting of the Lord and longing for him is something that is missing in so many people's Christianity. It it's a tragic thing. They have activities. They have church. And many people even have Bible reading and prayer and fellowship with other believers. But they don't long for Jesus. And we, we talk about that three-legged stool all of the time. Bible, prayer, fellowship with the saints. You, you can't grow without those things. Those three things are not like a magic spell that causes your sin to go away and your godliness to increase of themselves. They are means of fellowship with a person. And it's absolutely possible to engage in those things and miss Jesus altogether. People do it all the time. Now, so, some of you may have, uh, may have come and scratching your heads at the scripture reading this morning from the Song of Songs. Uh, you, you may or may not know that I'm the one that chooses those scripture readings. And so maybe that was just a prank on Pastor Jason to, to, to require of him that he read one of the most 
uncomfortable passages in the, in the Bible. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. No, actually, it's my desire to call our attention back to the Song of Songs and the desirability of this great bridegroom, Jesus Christ. You know, those, those of you who are new here may not know that we, we just went through the Song of Songs as a congregation and we viewed Jesus Christ as the great referent of, of that, that bridegroom. He is desirable and kind and loving and worth our every moment and affection. And what, what a tragedy if we were to miss him by just mindlessly engaging in the means of fellowship with him without actually fellowshipping with him. To, to, to do so is to just miss the point. But pl please don't ever hear me or anyone else here at Providence say that if you, if you just read your Bible, if you just pray every day, if you just spend time with other Christians, you won't struggle with sin and you'll lead a fulfilled life. If you've gotten that impression, then either I or others haven't been clear or you have misunderstood. Because those means are just like, they, they are means to an end. They are not the end. They're like windows, windows to see and enjoy a person, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. And he is the one who transforms us. So we must have those things. We must have, we must have the word of God. We must have prayer, must have fellowship with the saints, but we must have them precisely because our souls need fellowship with him. Consider with me or, or imagine with me for just a moment that you've come into some purely discretionary funds. This never happens, right? But you've, you've got some purely discretionary funds. You have nothing else to do with them. And so you're going to spend it on entertainment. So you go down to Best Buy and, and purchase the finest television that, that money can afford. And I don't know what technology is out there. So let's just say it's the one LeBron has. It's the, it's the biggest, it's the biggest, finest television out there. And you've got money left over. So you get the most technologically advanced surround sound system to go with it. You have these things professionally installed so that no wires are visible. And, and you get the, the theater seating too. It's like guaranteed to make you want to sleep down there. So you, you do all of that. You invest in a library of the greatest movies of all time, the greatest TV series of all time. Additionally, you, you subscribe to every online streaming service you can find. So everything is set. And you've invested all of this money. You go down there every day. Every day. You sit in that seat. And you never turn on the TV. You never turn on the speakers. And you stare at a blank screen and listen to nothing. You discipline yourself every day while telling yourself, this is the life. People are doing that devotionally all the time. They, they discipline themselves to, to read this book without finding the life-giving person there. They discipline themselves to talk out loud in an empty room, but not to a person, fellowshipping 
with a person. They get together with other Christians, but they do it just like they would get together with non-Christians. That is, they they are not conscious of the fact that the Spirit of Christ is there using them and everyone else as His hands and feet and voice in one another's lives. They're just doing stuff. As if John 17.3 is not in the Bible. This is life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. As if John 15.4 is not in the Bible. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I was reading the Valley of Vision this morning, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. I came across something that I I had to add to this message. It, It reads this way. Thou art the end of all means. For if they lead me not to thee, I go away empty. Let me, let me strip away the Puritan language and, and make it a little bit more modern, okay? You are the end of all means. You're the goal of the means of fellowship. You're, you're the point of engaging in these things. They don't lead me to you. I go away empty. I go away from Bible reading. Empty. I go away from prayer. Empty. I go away from fellowship with the saints. Empty. Peter knows that that kind of lifestyle can't remain in the life of an elect exile. You you can't survive like that. You can't survive and you can't be faithful to the mission like that. So he gives us this greatest, great command. Like a newborn baby. Long for this pure spiritual milk, which is Jesus Christ. So our great pleasure as believers is to long for the Lord Jesus. There are complicating factors in our lives. There are things that get in the way, things that I would call longing killers. And verse 1 helps us with this. We can only successfully long for Jesus when we are putting off the longing killers. That's the second point in your notes. We, we long for Christ in part as we are putting off longing killers. Let's look at verse 1 again. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now The, the verb here is grammatically connected to the one in verse 2. The main thrust is to long for Jesus. This, in verse 1, it must be done alongside it. So put it, putting away these things, it doesn't necessarily cause us to long for Jesus, but not doing it will hamper our longing for Jesus. These things in verse 1, they're, they're, they're like, like filthy weights. That, that, that hold us down in our, our pursuit for Jesus. So we're to take them off and cast them aside. So let, let's consider these words that he uses. E, e, each of the things that he mentions in verse 1, the word translated malice just refers to, to evil in general. So he, he's just covering everything. It's a, it's a blanket term, an umbrella term. It, evil in general, all ungodliness, put it aside. But then he, then, then he begins to to go to specific things, all deceit, 
all deceit. We like to hold ourselves just to, to putting off lying, don't we? You shall not lie. And so we, we parse that thing to death and convince ourselves, well, I'm not really lying. I'm just withholding information. Well, Peter covers the gamut here by saying, put, put away all deceit. The scriptures in, in, in I believe it's 1 Timothy 1, call God the, the unlying God. He is true. So we have been called to be like him. Peter did that. Peter calls us to this in, in chapter 1. God is true. We should despise falsehood in all of its forms. Get rid of all of it. Then he moves on to hypocrisy. Every way in which you present yourself to be something that you're not. Every way in which you say one thing and do another. Every way in which you act in a manner that's not consistent with your heart. Get rid of those things. They will kill your longing for Jesus. Envy, he mentions. We talked a little bit about re rejoicing with those who rejoice last week. The heart that fails to do that is the same heart that envies. Every way in which we begrudge someone their blessings, desiring what someone else has, or being discontent with what we have, all of those things together constitute an implicit complaint against the goodness of God and a denial of his right to do whatever he pleases. It's just absolutely wretched. In a sense, we, we, we put ourselves in God's place with envy and, and discontent. Actually, I'm in charge here. I know what's best for me. It's, it's a horrible, godless thing, and it should be cast away like a filthy rag. He moves on to all slander. We like to narrow this one down too. <coughs> but slander is not only spreading lies about someone, it's also just saying unkind things about them, disparaging people. Do you know that, that this impulse to disparage people, it's like a veil behind which the devil would, would conceal our own sin. And we're complicit in this. We, we, we like this. As long as we are disparaging other people, we're actually making ourselves feel better about, about our own failures. It's just poisonous to, to the soul. And so Peter ha would have us to throw it away. These things are longing killers. They, they counteract our, our longing for Jesus. Paul, Paul in, in Galatians 1, talks about this tug-of-war relationship that there is between godliness and sinfulness. He says that the desires of the Spirit pull on us and the desires of the flesh pull on us. The Spirit would pull us to Christ. The flesh would pull us to sin. Paul writes there, they are opposed to one another. They work against each other. When one grows stronger, it causes the other to grow weaker and, and vice versa. So you can't simultaneously grow in both of them. If you're going to grow in one, the other must grow weaker. And so causing one to grow weaker entails making the other grow stronger. Feeding one weakens the other as well. So feeding, feeding envy, hypocrisy, etc., it's going to weaken our desire for Jesus. Feeding our desire for Jesus 
will weaken our pull toward envy, hypocrisy, etc. But we tend to nurse these things in verse 1. We, we, tend to make, we tend to make a little bit of room for them in our lives. And, and we do that by telling ourselves that they're harmless. It's not terrible. We, we, we tend to do it by comparing ourselves favorably to others. Uh, so-and-so is so much worse than this. Uh, I, I'm, by, by comparison, I'm, I'm nothing like, like that. Maybe the worst way that we go about doing this is by misusing the gospel. We almost blasphemously use the gospel to convince ourselves it's actually okay for there to be remnants of these things in my life. We, we think things like, well, I can't be sinless. Christ covered these things. I'm under grace. And, and by that, we make ourselves feel okay that these things are, are still laying around and we're tolerating them. You know what Paul would say to that? I think he would say what he did say in Romans 6.2. Me genoito. The, the English, or this is actually the Birdwellian translation would be, ain't no way that's true. There's no way that's true. How can those who died to sin still live in it? How can, how can we think that way if the gospel is true? Well, not make light of sin because the gospel is true. That, that's actually backward thinking. The gospel doesn't make light of sin. The gospel makes much of sin. Sin is so dark and powerful and offensive to our holy God that one instance of it in your life calls you to hell and demands that hell be eternal. Sin is so terrible that only one thing could remove its stain from your life. Blood, and not animal blood, not even your own blood, but the blood of the precious Son of God, Jesus Christ, without blemish or spot. Sin is so egregious that only Christ could pay its penalty. And what payment was that? It was for this sinless Christ to endure the wrath of an omnipotent creator. Omnipotent wrath. Wrath without measure poured out by the powerful hand of the God who spoke all things into existence. Sin is great. Sin is, is, is unbelievably dangerous. Now, the gospel teaches that where sin was great, Christ was greater, right? I mean, he defeated it roundly. It cost him his life, but God the, God the Father raised him from the dead on the third day, signaling that he was, he was victorious over sin. Do not commit the evil of using Christ's victory to justify your toleration of sin. We, we, we need to, to think of these wretched weights in verse 1 rightly. They diminish our longing for the only thing that matters. And to the extent that we tolerate them, we will blunt our thirst for the pure spiritual milk of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how, how do we deal with them? How do we deal with these things in verse 1? How do we kill the longing killers? Well, we don't do it just by focusing on how terrible they are. It's helpful, but they must be replaced with something else. And so on a practical level, throwing off that garbage in verse 1 entails putting on the godly opposite. So we cultivate honesty and consistency of character and contentment and edifying speech. Put this off, 
put that on. This is all over the Bible. But our affections are at the foundation of this. So it's not just a matter of creating new habits, but cultivating a more powerful affection than the ones that are pulling us toward ungodliness. So make, you, make it your primary aim, as Peter does in this passage, to cultivate a greater affection for Christ. You, you, listen, you, you will never kill sin as long as you don't desire Jesus more than the sin, period. It just, was, it just won't work. And so this passage is not saying, I am not saying this morning, that you can't long for Jesus until you kill these sins. These things must be happening at the same time. You grow in your longing for Jesus as you are killing sin, and you kill sin as you are growing in your longing for Jesus. They happen at the same at the same time. There's a fantastic book that Michael Chernikon recommended to me a while back by Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The idea of that book is that Growing affection for Christ has the effect in our heart of pushing out ungodly affections. And it is far stronger than just trying to convince ourselves, I shouldn't love this sin and I just need to stop it. That's never going to be strong enough to get rid of that thing. I've got to love something else more. Something else has to push that out. Intense love for Jesus is a powerful antidote to sin. To, to, to find Jesus so desirable and enjoyable that you think, man, why on earth would I engage in something that pulls me away from him? That is what we are looking for. The more I love Jesus and the more that I see these things as, as longing killers, the more I'm going to hate, the, to hate them. So we will grow in our longing for Jesus as we actively smother these longing killers. We'll also grow in our longing for Christ by focusing on Future growth, and that's the third point in your notes, by focusing on future growth. Look at verse 2 again. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So why long for Christ? Because fellowship with him is how we Grow up into salvation. Now that language may sound peculiar to us. It isn't peculiar for Peter because remember that he sees salvation as a future reality. Ultimately, our salvation takes place when Christ returns. But he does use the phrase grow up into it. So he has, he has both the idea of growing in Christ's likeness and the, the ultimate end of of our faith and the fruit of our faith, which is spending eternity with Christ. Now, most of us don't think of, of this, this could be the case, spiritual growth as something pleasurable. But how could Christ's likeness not be something pleasurable? We, 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 we are so drawn to ungodliness because we have experienced how much pleasure it brings us, we really need to, to meditate on how pleasurable it would be to be like Jesus. How could it not be pleasurable to be like him? Just imagine he's perfect in patience. He is perfect in contentment, perfect in joy, perfect in love, 
perfect in fellowship with the Father. Throw anything at Jesus and he's fine. I mean, he's got to be the happiest being imaginable, Jesus. How could it be the case that becoming more and more like him wouldn't be pleasurable? The end result of, of all of this is, is, is even better, which is spending eternity with him in heaven. Peter's simp- simply saying here, long for Christ with present and future blessings in mind, growing up into him and spending eternity with him. I'm currently reading through J.C. Ryle's book, Thoughts for Young Men. It's called Thoughts for Young Men. I'm reading that with one of my sons. And this week we came across these words. I'm going to read just a short snippet to you. It reads, Rise up each day desiring that your soul may excel. Lie down each evening inquiring of yourself whether your soul has really grown. Remember Zeuxis, the old painter, or the great painter of old, when men asked him why he labored so intensely and took such extreme pains with every picture, his simple answer was, I paint for eternity. Don't be ashamed to be like him. You were placed here to train for eternity. This life that we're living right now is is a training ground for eternity. So casting your thoughts toward eternity and the glory of that greater Eden should keep us longing for Christ. Our longing for Christ grows as we focus on, on future growth. Finally, it also increases by remembering past goodness. By remembering past goodness. Let's look at verse 3 now. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There are commentators who would say that that, that if really should be understood as a sense. I think we should take the if seriously. I, I don't believe that, that, that Peter necessarily wants us to doubt whether or not we know the Lord. But there is this idea here that those who have tasted something delightful return to it, right? So you should long for the Lord Jesus if you've tasted him, right? Um, I was asked at, at a party once, this kind of icebreaker thing. If you had to choose two people to go with you to live on a deserted island, who would they be? And my answer was my wife and 180 pounds of her lasagna. Because her lasagna is amazing. You, know, you, 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 you taste something once, you, you want to go back to it. That, that's, what, that's what's going on here. L- long for him. If you've tasted him, if you know he's desirable, you have tasted him, haven't you? So it's not an insult, but it's just a gentle prodding. You have tasted him, haven't you? The intent is for the reader to consider the question and to answer in the affirmative, Yes, I, I have tasted him, and, and he is good. He just, he just wants us to think about that. You know that, that people who nurse grudges, they do so by 
reliving the offense committed against them. Anybody admit to doing that? I'm raising my hand. We, we, we nurse grudges by reliving those offenses. Did you know that you can do the opposite? You can, you can nurse affection by reliving occasions of great fellowship and love. Shelby and I celebrate two anniversaries every year. We've got you know, the typical one, the day that we were married, but we also celebrate the day that we met. And often on the anniversary of the day that we met, we will we'll talk through that, that first day, that event where we met. And not just that day, but the following week, we'll talk through that and kind of relive all of that together because there were a lot of firsts in that in that week. And I do that in my own mind a lot of times when I'm having trouble sleeping. I'll just think about the first time that I saw her and I think about going home that night that night and telling my mom about her. I think about that first the first movie that we saw together and then the first hug. All of those things. It just feeds my affection for her. Isn't this what the Holy Spirit prompts us to do throughout the Bible as it calls us to remember God's works in the past? Isn't this why Yahweh refers to himself so many times as the God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians? Is it that they don't know that that's who he is? No, it's that he's calling their attention to remember, remember and, and, and let your heart be stirred by past instances of love. And why in the New Testament would, would Jesus so often be referred to as Savior? It's to call our attention back to the cross. That our hearts would be stirred by what we find there. We're being called to re remember, go back and ponder these things. This was the habit of the psalmist. Listen, listen to Psalm 63, verses 5 through 8. He writes there, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. In other words, he, he talks about, I, I will be satisfied. I will praise you. Because right now, here in the present, I'm remembering, meditating on things that you have done for me in the past. So I wonder if you have a repertoire of memories of God's kindness and goodness to you, just like the psalmist. Do you have those? Certainly you do if you know him. Those initial moments and days of intimacy just after the Holy Spirit awakened you to know who he is. Some of you, I, I, I know what those days are like. I can, think of, I can think of instances in some of your lives. Those, those first moments of spiritual life, that mother of all trials, where he, he was all you had and he showed himself to be more than sufficient. 
Those people that he brought into your life at just the right time to disciple you, at just the right time to, to confront you, just the right time to encourage you, just the right time to help you, they represent his kindness in your life. What about those times when he so graciously used you to draw someone else closer to him? When have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Go back and relive those things. Let the Holy Spirit use them to fan into flame the affections that may of late have died down to a smoldering ember. Relive those things and taste that goodness afresh in present fellowship with him. Elect exiles are called to be different. We have an otherworldly message. It's inherently transformational. And for that reason, everything about us should be different, including the object of our highest longing. The object of our highest longing should coincide with the center of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. We should long for him to that end, we should kill anything that gets in the way. We should look forward to where that longing is taking us. We should feed it constantly by remembering, remembering, remembering that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Make it a priority to taste Him all the more every day. That people might look at us and see a life that is consistent with the gospel that we preach. This is conduct becoming of an elect exile. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that those of us who know you, we have these, these instances of, of your goodness, your kindness in the past that we can return to Pray that right now you would flood our minds with those things. By them, it would be confirmed to us. Yes, oh, we have tasted. Jesus is good. That our appetite for fellowship with him would be renewed. It would go stronger all the time that we would be moved to brutally assault anything that would threaten that fellowship, these longing killers. That we would desire to be like him. That we would look forward to eternity with him. That our lives would be characterized, characterized by one highest desire above all, Jesus himself, so that the world will look at us and say, there must be something to this gospel. Because they are living in a manner consistent with it. Lord, let that be true of us here at Providence Bible Fellowship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.